Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk, and Make a Podcast. This is Yolanda, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you? So last year, several times on this podcast, I mentioned Coach Prime, Dion Sanders, oh, yeah. who was the coach, the head coach of the Jackson State University football team in Jackson, Mississippi, um, one of our great HBCUs, one of our great historically black colleges and universities. So uh, he went there, he changed that program, um, he raised the level in many ways, and that program was thriving, recruited some new players, and it had both um, an emotional and a financial impact on the school, and everyone was happy. And then he decided to leave to take a position at a predominantly white institution, the University of Colorado. And when he decided to leave, of course, there was a lot of criticism. Uh, some said he was a sellout. Uh, one president of an HBU said, HBCU said, I hope he fails at that new institution. A lot of people questioned the move um, because he is a gifted builder. And so why not stay at this institution where you are clearly having success and clearly having an impact both on the lives of students and the institution and also the city, right? And um, he decided to go to this PWI on the other side of the country and so Saturday was their first game now understand that um, when he got there he brought some of his players from his former school recruited some new players and many of the players that were already there at the University of Colorado yeah, they lost their place right they, yeah. and, and well only about I want to say 10% something it was not a lot but the rest, not the rest, but many more got together and said, we're leaving. And so a lot of students, a lot of players on the football team, that is, left. And so people began to question, will this even work? Is this going to fall apart before it even starts? Not only did he make some changes with the football team, but he had a meeting with leaders of the marching band to say, hey, can we um, can we add some new songs? Can we do some things? Mm -hmm. Can we make some culture change even here? Because in HBCUs, the marching band is part of the whole vibe of a football game. Well, and music is culture. Yes. So, you know, in... PWIs, the marching band is part of the culture of the school and athleticism, and it's just different, right? Yes. And so, again, my perennial reminder to people like me that white people have culture. White people do have <laughs> culture. So, Coach Prime, Deion Sanders, changes many things, almost everything. So, their first game. Wait, wait, can I just pause one more thing? Sure. Much in the same way that. I mean, my understanding, which admittedly is limited of how football works in universities, is that essentially the football coach is 
the most powerful person in the entire university, period, full stop. In many cases. So, well, I mean, in the schools that are like, if, if your football game is on TV on a Saturday, yes. then you are the mo- I mean, like, and in many states, the football coach is the highest paid public employee, like, is paid more than the governor, right? So for Deion Sanders to come in and say, I want to make some changes at that university, he's just he is just embodying the role as in the same kind of powerful way that any white coach at a big university like that would do. Right. Because no one would think it was weird if a white coach came in and said, yes. I want to change the way the band works. He just did it in a way that's very unique to him, to his own identity and culture. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, you know, be mindful that the university of Colorado won out of its 12 games last year, one, they, they won just one game. So uh, Saturday, they played uh, TCU, Texas Christian University. Frogs. Uh, yes. I'm so sad and, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> and this isn't just any team. This is the team that was the runner-up in the championship last year. Mm-hmm. So this is a big deal. This is a big test. And so I watched the game because I'm just very interested in this man. I don't care anything about these two teams. No, but I'm so glad I, we're having this conversation because like everyone, well, not everyone, but many people are talking about Deion Sanders and I can tell like, but I didn't watch the game and I don't really know what happened. And so I kind of want to know what all their comments mean. But so I'm really glad that you're going to explain good. it well, to me. I watched the game. I, I was, I was trying to write my sermon and write the game at the same time. Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, and it was a fantastic game. It was back and forth. It was high scoring. And it wasn't clear that the University of Colorado would win. But they did in the mm-hmm. end. I mean, and it was a fantastic game. And um, in the press conference, Dion just kept asking everyone, I mean, do you believe now? Do you believe? Do you believe? <laughs> do you?" And there were, you know, reporters asking him questions. And he would say, wait weren't you the one a couple of weeks ago oh, awesome. writing a bunch of junk about me? <laughs> Aren't you supposed to be asking me what happened, coach? I thought you said X, Y, and Z. No, do you believe? And, and, the, and the reporter said, believe what? And Sanders said, well, no, you don't believe if you have to ask that question. Um, so why am I bringing this up on the Two Pastors podcast? I think there are a couple of reasons. Number one, he is an example of someone that makes the systems of white supremacy tremble. Because he came into the University of Colorado Mm -hmm. like fully black, code switching zero. I mean, he came in, the, the, the coach we saw at Jackson State is the coach we see at the University of Colorado same kinds of speeches, same energy, same culture. Um, and, and he is an example of black excellence. Now, he is, he is gifted more than the average person because what he does, he's not only a gifted player, a gifted coach, a gifted recruiter, a, re- a gifted strategist, a gifted orator. His his pregame speeches are they are sermons, and he is a committed Christian. I mean, he's just 
it, it, it's embarrassing that that much gifting is in one person. Um, but he is an example of someone who says, I'm going to be fully myself no matter the context. And I heard someone say, and I wish I could remember who said this, but someone was talking about Sanders and they said he is giving a lot of young black people the permission to walk in their giftedness mm -hmm. and to ignore uh, messages that would self-lower um, their own ceiling, a ceiling of success. So I, I, number one, th that's one reason I want to bring uh, that up. Number two, I just find his, his way of living out the faith very inspirational. He is very clear that he is a Christian, that God is giving him gifts, and that he really only has two passions. One is for football, the other is for kids. And he just mm -hmm. puts those together in light of his faith. And as someone who is in leadership, um, I am, I'm inspired by his being fully himself in spite of the criticism. And I think what's going to happen post Sanders is that we will see more black coaches at predominantly white schools. Yeah, I mean, what I, I think two things. One thing that I did see um, that I thought was really interesting, like just some pictures that they were saying that a lot of his players have different letters on their jersey and that like instead of having a team captain, he has players who wear an L. and L is leader and what's D like D is for dog. Right. <laughs> I mean, which is which is how those players talk because right. a, a dog is what loyal, committed, Strong, dependable, right, de right. dependable. Yeah, and I just thought like what I love about that is moving out of that hierarchical model of there's one person yes. who's the most important and the most valuable and everybody else like line up in order of worthiness to this culture of hey, we are a community and within this community, we have ways to really like a fully, um, fully grow and become like the, the fullest and most powerful expressions of ourselves. And we're not in competition with one another. And yeah. so, yeah, there's no limit to how many good leaders you can have on a team. There's no limit to how many dogs can be on the right. team. And I just think that's just a very, that's a very different understanding of what quote works in a communal setting and I will say like a I mean hierarchy is just baked into the bread of every everything um, in this American culture and I think like the deep irony is Jesus came I mean, obviously it's deeper than America. So empire culture, right? Like mm -hmm. the emperor's on the top and everyone else just lines up in order of worthiness and importance and power and giftedness. And you're always trying to get above, you know, get the people beneath you to give you your due and to like clamor up, you know, that's just the, the struggle. And, and Jesus came really to challenge that, like the incarnation is like the extreme inversion of that, right? Like, having full equality with God did not consider that an advantage, but emptied himself of glory and coming down and living among us, right? It's just the say of like, there's another way to do this. And then the community of Jesus was 
was, and I think the true community is and ever will be a place where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And the greatest among you is those who is the one who serves. And, you know, you consider the good of your neighbor and let the strong bear with those who are weak. And so like this hierarchical way is just smashed and destroyed. And there's this like Trinitarian shalom, like interdependence, mutual well-being is the alternative to that. And so, I mean, maybe it, it, it's silly, but like I look at that and I go, see, that's a different way. I mean, not to say like, well, everybody just does what they want. It doesn't matter. But to say like, no, there's a way that you can encourage growth and greatness in people without pitting them against one another. And I think, I mean, again, obviously not an athlete, but, you know, we tend to, even in a competitive sport, you see that there's, there's maybe how you feel about the opponents, but then there's, but in most teams, there's also internal division um, we're also rewatching Ted Lasso, which is just so beautiful. But anyway, so I, I love that. And then the other thing I think is to say, um, you know, I, to me, it's worth noting whoever the unseen people at, is it Colorado? What's the name of the university? University of Colorado. University of Colorado. Whoever is there, whoever brought Deion Sanders in and, and I'm sure, like, he's obviously knows what he's doing. And so I'm sure he negotiated this on the way in and is and is enforcing it. But somebody there, some people there were wise enough to say, we're going to bring him in and then we're going to let him be who he is, right? Instead of, I think what so often happens, you invite someone in and you say to them, like, hey, we want you here because you are X and Y and Z and you can do, you can meet this goal. But now that you're here, not, not like that, not like that, not like that, not like that. And so to bring him in and to let, and to recognize that if you have him, it's stupid to invite him in and then not let him be him. Right. And so, and I'm sure that there was much resistance, not just to him, but to the people around him who had to say like, no, we're going to, we do believe, (laughs) and we're going to give him a shot. Like you can't ask someone to come in and lead a program and then not let them do what they want to do and then hold them accountable for the results. And so I think like there's obvious parallels to pastoral leadership. And that was a huge thing of just a reorientation, not just for church members, but for us as pastors to say like, look, if you are leading a community, that doesn't necessarily mean you're the big boss and you get to do whatever you want and people should just like it or get out. But the other extreme of that is to bring someone in as a leader and say, you, the buck stops with you. You're completely 100% responsible for everything, but you can't do anything unless we agree and approve of it. And so then when someone comes in and says, okay, well, we need to do X and, you know, the leadership body, the board says, well, no, you can't, you must do Y. And then when you don't get the right result, you go back to the leader and go, well, why didn't this work? And they're like, well, because I told you <laughs> like what needed to happen. Yeah. So I think that's really unusual. And in, and a rare example, I hope, I mean, we only know what we saw or what you saw on Saturday morning, but what I hope is an authentic experience of a healthy multicultural community that it's not just he gets to show up and be the black coach at the predominantly white university, but he gets to come in his full embodied self and he gets to bring his culture with him and that there's like mutuality and yielding so that he can go to the band leaders and say, Hey, it's not just now I'm going to get on board with how things are here, but how things are here, you know, there's just, cause I'm sure obviously as much as 
the the life at the University of Colorado has changed, it still in no way resembles Jackson State, right? So he has changed. He has yielded and sacrificed a lot, and they and also. The University of Colorado this year looks nothing like, at least in the football program, what it did in the previous year. And so there's just that mutuality of like, hey, everybody is experiencing some discomfort here because we believe that this new community is going to bear fruit. And that we talk about that a lot in our church communities of look like everybody ideally wants to be almost everybody wants to be in a multi-ethnic community. But the but what we don't want is to be in a multicultural community. So we want to say like, yes, I want someone who looks like X, Y, or Z ethnic group to come in here, but I want them to think like me, talk like me, pray like me, have opinions like me, preferences like me. So yes, come in here and do what I want you to do and, and show up and sit, sit beside me in a way that makes me feel comfortable. And so like, that's just a great example, not just of, um, you know, not, not just of what Deion Sanders did, not to take anything away of that, but like, I don't think we often celebrate enough what it costs to, you know, have this active passivity of letting go and saying like, I would prefer X, but I'm going to support you in Y because I understand that you, I'm not going to invite you to be in this community without also expecting and encouraging you to shape it. And that like, dynamic push and pull is just so important and I think it's what we're what we really struggle with but I think that space of discomfort that's the healthy spiritual discomfort that if we'll practice and allow Jesus to lead us into that zone just really beautiful holy things happen there he does two things really well first is that he has this magnetic confidence Mm -hmm. and he'll just tell you I'm a winner I win football games I know this game I know what I'm doing I know what I'm doing Mm -hmm. and at the same time there is this um I guess you call it humility because he's always talking about us this is what we are doing and even you know in a pregame speech He'll say to his team, it's it's not about our opponents on the field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's, it's about us. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're working hard on the field, not for yourself, but for the guys on your left and your right. Mm-hmm. You work hard. That inspires them. The team works hard. Mm-hmm. And so there's that, um, that b- both that, that confidence and humility. And I find that in the church, especially... Uh, in, in church leadership, it's either we, we, we acquiesce to the lowest common denominator, like yeah. l- let's not upset the arp- apple cart, we don't want to make anyone mad, or you have leaders that just steamroll over the people, and they are, you know, mini emperors in the mm-hmm. in the midst of the congregation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I and I think like this just comes down to if if you're an American, and I'm obviously. It's amazing to me, but really exciting to me to think that not everyone listening is an American. But as an American, you know, the, what is what is in the air around us all the time is this sense of individuality and that we understand freedom as something that is inherently individual. And so, and we have a deep, 
distrust of anything communal because, well, I mean, you and I were Gen Xers, so we grew up during the Cold War. So any talk of community is immediately like socialism, communism, they are going to take our freedom. And so it's just the sense of like, you can only be free as an individual and you can, and your freedom is something that you as an individual earn and you as an individual have to protect. And so like, I'm responsible for my freedom. You're responsible for your freedom. And like, to the extent that we are both free next to each other, that can be a community. But like we just, and so I think like that sense, recovering a healthy sense of community and an understanding like the the intrinsic connection between flourishing individuals and a flourishing community is something that's so difficult for us to do um, as Americans and as American Christians because we just read the Bible as if it's all about individual stories, which is has got to be crazy for people from other cultures because... Um, but you know, we, we, that's why we sort of all think of ourselves unconsciously as like the Jesus figure in every story and situation, because Jesus is, as we read it so often, Jesus is the hero of the Bible and I want to be a hero. So I got to be like Jesus and to be a follower of Jesus. We think of it as like to be an extra in the movie when we, we want to be the star, which segues me this connection between individual and community segues me to the astonishment portion go for it okay so um i think i hope that i'm going to get my life together and write about this but um so there's been this um sort of there have been a flurry of reports news reports and about this um people who live in a part of charlotte i think it's called fourth ward which is an uptown charlotte neighborhood um that that people in that neighborhood are very angry and upset, understandably, because um, there there have been people who have been pooping outdoors and in the parks, and so they walk in their parks in the morning, and there's human feces there, and um, your people are urinating outdoors, and so like the neighbors are understanding, so are are un, are upset. So let me just start. Let me just preface that. It is obviously deeply problematic on every level to live in a place where there is human excrement on the streets. I, I wouldn't like it in my neighborhood. I wouldn't like it in front of my house. I do not think it's funny. I think it is a problem. All right? Um, but it's very interesting to me to watch the discussion about it because the discussion is very individualistic. Like predominantly the people who are raising this as an issue in public forums are saying like, this is disgusting. It's ruining my neighborhood. What is wrong with people? This shouldn't be. And calling the police and saying to the police, like, can't you do something? And, one of the things that has happened recently in Charlotte is there there used to be laws against public urination and public defecation. And in a in in um an attempt to sort of move away from criminalization of every problem, those um, laws have been taken off the books. So it is no longer a crime. So neighbors are calling the police and the police are saying, like, you know, this is not a crime. So even if we could catch the poopers, we can't arrest them 
And so then the discussion becomes like, well, it needs to be a crime again, right? Like we need to be able to arrest and punish the people who are um, going to the bathroom in public. And, and I just am like, it's just crazy to me that people don't want to look at the big picture, which is like, I do think it is possible that there are some individuals who maybe maliciously um, or maybe because of mental illness or, or, or some sort of, you know, um, overwhelming condition are, are have other options and are choosing to defecate on the streets. And again, I want to say I wouldn't like it if it were happening on my streets. If, if nothing else, it's a public health issue, right? So I'm not down. It is a problem. But I think it's really interesting that people aren't connecting the dots between we have a huge affordable housing crisis in this city that everybody wants to talk about it and nobody wants to be about it. Almost nobody. Because everyone is in favor of people having affordable housing as long as it's not in their neighborhood. And the problem is everywhere is in somebody's neighborhood. And so everybody wants affordable housing built on the opposite side of town. And no one wants to come out against affordable housing. So what we end up is having these conversations about, you know, much in the same way that we would have about like women in leadership, which is like, oh, I believe in women in leadership, just not that woman or that woman or that woman. So we have this affordable housing problem that frankly, most of us who are housed are pretty comfortable with it just being a problem, right? Like we're just pretty comfortable with like writing news articles about it, maybe like going to fundraiser events about it. But like, we're just like, yeah, this is how it is. Like you just drive around the city of Charlotte and basically every intersection you go to, there's going to be people standing there asking for money and asking for help. And we're just like, oh, this is, this is just what it is. And we know that people are like, trying desperately to find housing in like storage units and we're just like oh like this is just we are used to having this problem and we sort of believe that that there that it's inevitable um that it is mostly a matter of personal responsibility like the people who don't have houses don't have any place to live like i mean it's really their fault like they're drug users they're criminals they're irresponsible they eat too much avocado toast like they could have a place to live if they were worthy of having a place to live so we're just used to having this problem and we're fine with it until <laughs> we start seeing things like what has happened recently in charlotte the public library which is uptown has been closed because it's being rebuilt. So it was one of the only places in that area where you could go to the bathroom without being a customer. And so when you live in a city where you say, we don't want to have any accessible public bathrooms, every place that you can go to the bathroom either has to be the home that you live in, the um, extended stay hotel that you live in, which by the way, some people don't want to solve affordable housing because the people who lit, who run these, um, long-term afford, like extended stay hotels, they are making bank. Like they, for very little investment, like it doesn't have to be nice. People are spending like $400 for a week of housing in a really like 
small I mean like it's you, you make a lot of money if you own an afford an extended stay motel or hotel in a city with an affordable housing crisis that's good business for you what people would pay for a one or two bedroom apartment they're paying for an efficiency size apartment I right mean, room and, in a hotel right and then it trickles on up like people will pay more and more and more for apartments like if you are a rental if you own rental property in charlotte it is to your economic advantage for there to be an affordable housing crisis in this city because then people cannot buy a home so they have to continue to renting your homes and they have no other options which means you don't have to improve the property you don't have to I mean, like people are stuck they have no other options so it's all well and good until all of a sudden your individual success that has led you to having um, a desirable place to live in the city is all of a sudden marred because you go walking in the public park by your house and you see human feces on the ground and you're mad at the humans who are defecating on the streets but you're not looking at the bigger picture, which is like, I live in a community where I resist building accessible public bathrooms, where I resist having affordable housing or transitional housing models. I won't, I, I'm resisting the Charlotte 2040 plans that would allow duplexes and triplexes to be put in my neighborhood. Like basically I'm against every solution for affordable housing. Well, eventually, even if you don't care about your neighbors, one, and I would argue the least of the consequences of that human tragedy is you're going to see some human poop in your parks because either people can't find anywhere else to go, or perhaps people feel like my life is pretty miserable and I don't really feel like respecting the sanctity of this public space that you enjoy when I have no place to go. Like I just think it is a it's a tragedy that people are saying dogs are allowed to poop, but homeless people should be put in jail unless they can figure out how to get enough money every day to go into McDonald's to buy something so that they can use the bathroom. I mean what people people have biological needs and if we're not going to figure out a way for people to get housed then we're going to have to live in a community where it's everybody for themselves which means we don't have communal space that we can keep nicely because some of us feel very invested in our community and some of us feel like no one cares about me here. People are just looking for a reason to arrest me and kick me while I'm down and then I end up back in a for-profit prison jail um, system, which I mean, I just feel like people just don't even know. People are like, oh, you go to jail and you get coddled. I mean, you know that if you go to jail, you have to buy everything for yourself. Like you have to buy travel-sized toiletries like toothpaste like toothbrush and that costs seven times as much as what we could do in the store like people are making big money off of these products off of these problems and and I again it's not that I am I understand it's a problem if people are pooping in the streets and I understand it is a problem for the neighbors who live there but I also just want us to understand that there's a it's like the top of the iceberg and the actual magnitude of human suffering is hidden underneath the surface of the waters and people are just like can we just get the police to arrest these people and then the problem will be solved but the idea that people don't have any place to live 
and be human in dignity, we just continue to want to pretend that that's an individual problem that individuals can by themselves solve. And again, I don't think it's an either or. I think it's a both and. I once heard a preacher say, people are not your problem. The problem is the problem. problem. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I heard a report about an Episcopal church in the center part of our city. And there was a homeless person, I think this was back when it was colder, who was sleeping somewhere around the building. And right across the street, there was, uh, there is an apartment complex or a condominium complex. And the people in those apartments or condominiums complain to the church why are you letting this homeless person stay on your grounds it may bring our property values down you must do something get rid of this person and they put a lot of pressure and the church was okay with this person staying there and they put a lot of pressure on the church to care for now they probably could have done more but that's beside the point but these residents did not want to look out of their windows and see this homeless person across the street we got a call at derida church last week actually an email from one of the elementary schools in our neighborhood and this school leader said hey we've got a student they came the first day and they disappeared and we think it's because the family is unhoused. And we think this kid is not coming to school because they're in a car, they're living in a car with their family, and they need clothes. Like, how how could we not get this kid some clothes? And I'm just thinking of that scripture, and I'm going back to you know what you said in the beginning about our faith mostly being an individual versus a communal exercise. And I can't help but think of that scripture where it says, um, how can we say we love God whom we haven't seen? We don't say, yeah. If we do not love a brother brother or sister whom we can't see. But I mean, I think the challenge is there's just a narrative and it has infiltrated the Christian church, which is that person who's experiencing homelessness is not your sister or your brother, right? Like that, that person they is a are different, the problem. they are a different kind of human if they're even fully human at all. And so, you know, and this is just how God has designed it. This is just the way it is. Like, and I, you know, I think Listen, I've been a part of an affluent, both an affluent suburban and an affluent urban congregation. I've been a member of both of those kinds of congregations. And it's very interesting when you go into a setting in which everyone seems to have it together. Yeah. Everyone seems to have all that they need. The quote-unquote fellowship hall is... For those who are members to have a good time to enjoy themselves, this is like this. You begin to think that the church exists 
for <laughs> these people, to exist mm -hmm. for um, the celebration of 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 of, of this life, this 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 lifestyle, if you will. And when you go into a context that's different, I've also been part of an urban congregation that was very poor, that was struggling, that especially in um, the early 90s when, you know, a lot of drugs in urban communities and therefore a lot of violence in urban communities. In those congregations, um, there is more of a sense of, no, we, we exist to be a part of rescuing people. Mm -hmm. And it's just a, it's a very different mindset when it comes to being and doing church. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I was listening to something recently, well, the Holy Post podcast, and they were talking some about like, I mean, they were having a conversation about the declining birth rate and delaying having children. And one of the premise of these two men who were talking was that like, well, people just are are pursuing a more individualistic lifestyle. And so they just don't want to decenter themselves and have children. And they just want to enjoy the perks of, you know, and, and also they were saying that, you know, people um, could still have a mother at home and a father at work. And it wasn't a parent at home and a parent at work. It was a mother at home and a father at work, which, okay. Um, but that, but that they don't want it because they see their neighbors having like a bigger car and they see their neighbors having a bigger house and they want that lifestyle. And so that seduces them into having two parents at work and that's blah, blah, blah. And I, and then, but it was interesting. They were saying, so if you think the solution to this is policy improvements, like, you know, childcare credits and they like, that won't solve it because basically people are selfish and that will just enable them to be more selfish. And I'm like, that's just so interesting that you're, I mean, as a listener, what I say is like, I just don't think that you know anybody who is not in your income level because you can't conceive of how difficult it is for, that it's just easy for you to say like, oh, people aren't having children because they're selfish. And you don't know people who are literally working two jobs, not because they want a bigger house, but because they want to have a apartment <laughs> and are still living on the edge of disaster, you know, working like, and it's just so cavalier to be like, Oh, you're selfish. You don't You're not willing to forego vacations. I mean, I'm like, gosh, you're just, I mean, and you're not my enemy. And I actually am just always astonished at how much like common ground and agreement there is. But I'm like, I just don't think that if you were a part of a community with economic diversity, I do not think that you could find yourself saying those sentences so cavalierly and I do think like even more than ethnically culturally segregated we are economically segregated from one another so people with resources just have this idea of who the poor are or who the homeless are and one of the things that I I find fascinating and I've been through it before myself and I see watch other people go through it too is that when when people come into relationships with folks who are in different income levels they are always astonished at like oh this person is intelligent this person is hardworking. this person is you know I'm like it's just because the only thing that allows us to live with this 
deep deepening divide between I saw this phrase the other day deepening divides between the have nots and the have lots which is it right like it's not just the haves and the have nots it's the have nots and the have lots and the only thing that allows us to have comfort with that is if we have this idea in our head of who the have nots are and why helping you know like putting more justice because it's not helping right it's justice and and putting policies in in place to create more equity and justice would just be wasted on those people because blah, blah blah and I'm not saying look I'm not saying that I don't know people in every income level who make economic decisions that internally make me raise my eyebrows I'm just saying like I don't know more financially irresponsible people who are economically disadvantaged than I know, in my opinion, financially irresponsible people who are economically advantaged, right? And I do think, you know, we have this idea that like, well, if you're, if you're experiencing homelessness, or if you are, you know, on the edge, then like, you shouldn't ever, you should never do a, like, you should never go, you shouldn't eat anything but bologna and ramen, and you should, like, that's so, like, foolish of you that you would ever, like, have a latte in a Starbucks, like, that's why you're poor, and I'm like, I just think it's crazy that when you know someone in your income level, and, and they do something indulgent, like, you know, whatever, go out to a fancy, you're just like, oh, well, everybody, but, but if someone is living, in like constant stress on the edge of a financial precipice, you have no sense that people would ever have to have anything that would let them enjoy their life. You just think, you know, I I mean, I was looking at an article the other day about how like a person for a person who is living in poverty to get to the middle class in America, the average, it would take 20 years of no setbacks in order to make that trend. like 20 years where you never go to the hospital you never lose a job your landlord never says sorry I'm selling out you never have a car that the engine dies out you never have a kid who needs like therapy that's not covered by like that's just I mean like of course people make like decisions when they are overwhelmed to seek comfort and meaning. And I'm not saying we all could, I guess I'm just saying we, I'll speak for myself. I know that my financial house could be more um, in line with the values of the kingdom of God and could be far more responsible and, and I have a certain sense of like, well, nobody's perfect. But when we look at someone who is under like extreme um, pressure all the time and, and literally physical danger all the time with, with much less resources and gifting than I've had, we expect that that person will have like faultless, blameless, never make a mistake financial choices. And if they do, then, well, you just got what you deserved. Yeah, two responses to that. Number one, uh, helps me to see once again the beauty and power of especially the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. of places like Israel wandering in the wilderness. These freed slaves, after they leave Egypt, God gives them manna daily. Mm -hmm. And the scripture says that those who collected more did not have too much, 
and those who collected less did not have too little. Everyone had as much as they needed. And I know someone's going to say socialism, but it's in the text there. Right. It also highlights the beauty and power of the practice of gleaning. Uh, people were to leave part of their fields unharvested so that the poor could come and gather food. There are just so many places like that in the Old Testament that says remember the humanity of the poor and bless them because the reality is what you have, you've been given given it by God. And well, there's there's a place that says um, is when you when you get into the promised land and you you gain wealth, do not say, you know, I have done this by the strength of my hands. It's like, no, it is the Lord right. who and has I think done this for you. The reason that it's not socialism is like you look at how God distributes the land among the tribes and it's not all the same. It's not all it's the not. same. Like some tribes have less and some tribes have more, but what is an absolute is God says things like you can't, you know, if you if you borrow if you sell someone sells their land to you after seven years you gotta give it back. At the year of Jubilee it all gets a reset. Like it's just this idea of a culture, like we live in a culture and where the goal is to get an advantage and then parlay that advantage into even more advantages. And see, here's where I think we are in, in our society, our society, the, the, it seems to me the message is you can't really do good in the world. You can't really make your mark in the world unless you are an Elon Musk, unless you are, um, well, we worship wealth. Right? So then, then you could build a rocket to the moon, right? Then you can send people into outer. Then you can do the. So you, you got to get the money. Because, well, and your wealth and your acquisitiveness is the proof that what you say and think is superior because we worship mam mammon, yeah. and that is what we do. And I, I, I think it's just really. Um, Oh shoot! I just lost the thread of, but I, but I do think it's just understanding. Oh, I know what I was gonna say because my oldest is a senior in high school, which is a whole thing. Um, but we are getting a lot of mail from different um, colleges and universities because she's planning to go to college, and we're really grateful that um, we are gonna be able to make that happen for her. And it's huge, huge, huge privilege. Um, but I'm just, it's, I just notice, I'm just looking at these glossy brochures and, and the, the theme, the through line for all of them is like this, this school, this degree, will, your, your student will get an advantage in the global economy. Like education is for advantage. And the only reason that you would choose to invest in this education is if your kid is going to get an advantage that will parlay into more money. And I just think it, it just says so deeply, like we can't see any reason to do anything if it doesn't translate into financial gain. Maybe power, but that is essentially ultimately going to be about financial gain and, or advantage. And, and the gospel is such a counter 
message to that. Like if, if the center of the gossip gospel is the cross, that is the anti-advantage, right? Yeah, And that brings me to the second thing that was, um, that's on my mind. It, I think it allows us to say something good about the PCUSA, the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, with our focus on Matthew 25 and inviting churches to become Matthew 25 congregations. You know, it's in Matthew 25, Jesus um, tells a, a parable about the day of judgment that the king will separate the sheep from the goats. And, um, you know, they say, well, well, how did you come to make some sheep and some goats? And, and the king will say, you know, I was, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you came to visit me as you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. And um, I, it, I don't know if, um, if it's right to say um, those who um, championed Matthew 25, however many years ago, that they were being prophetic. But I think mm-hmm. that kind of text, those kinds of texts are really needed in this season uh, in our country? Well, I, I think so. And I think that the reality is what is important to me about that text is the connecting of the fidelity, the worship, the relationship with Jesus to the interaction with neighbors, brothers, sisters, because, you know, what strikes me about that text is not like I was hungry. And so you ran for Congress and got elected and passed laws so that I would be fed. And it wasn't like I was naked. And so you founded a charity and then hired people who would feed me, right? It's this like you, I like you as an individual want to be in relationship with Jesus as son of God individual. And, and the way that that happens is a, is a one-to-one direct connection between the people who have been gifted by God. I mean, right. Because the understanding is whatever we, I mean, from our perspective, not from a cultural perspective, but from our perspective inside the fellowship of Jesus Christ, we know that I've got nothing that Jesus didn't give me nothing. I have nothing that Jesus didn't give me. Like, I know everybody hated Obama's. You didn't build that speech. And like, maybe as an American, you can quibble about it in your civics class. But like, I know (laughs) that I have nothing that was not given to me by Jesus. And so I understand that there's no merit on my part that makes me different than someone who doesn't have. And I know that the one who I call Lord and Savior and the one who gave me good gifts has said, you know, this this is how I want you to interact with folks in need when you have a gift and resource to give to them. And I think, you know, it's just um, really interesting. Gosh, I keep losing my mind just right in the middle of a thought. It's just, okay. Oh, I was going to say Calvin. Calvin. Sorry. I, I I have this rare moment. Like you have a rare moment of saying, hey, let's celebrate the PCUSA. I have a rare moment of saying this is the part of Calvin we don't pay attention to. That Calvin said, if you have more than you need, then you've stolen it from the poor. So like if you have three tunics, one of those God gave you in trust to give to someone with no tunic. And that's just such a countercultural 
message. And we've just shaved the edges off of that and translated it into the prosperity gospel. Yeah, there's that place in the psalm, Psalm 23, where um, David says, my cup runneth over. And the image is supposed to be your cup running over into someone else's cup. Right. Instead, what we do is we just get a bigger cup. Bigger cup, which we, Jesus we, told a story about that, right? right Build we, a bigger barn, right. you fool. It's like, oh, my cup is running over. Let me get a bigger cup so that I can contain it all. Yeah, or you know, the ending of that psalm where it's like, you've set a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And I think you grow up in America and you read that like, oh, I'm at the table. And they're like, whatever, they're on the edges and they're in chains and they're hungry and they're just like suffering, watching me eat. And now they're getting what's coming to me. And then you're like, oh... Maybe you're setting a table for me in the presence of my enemies because my enemies and I are going to be feasting together at your table. Like, Jesus just might like, reconcile you. Right. I mean, which I, I can understand how like pre, pre-cross, pre-last supper, you would see that one way. But, but post-last supper... We got to see it a different way. And I think, you know, this is just the perennial issue of like, if you read, if you come to the Bible and you take everything that the culture has taught you about what truth is, and then read the Bible through the eyes of the culture, you're going to see something very differently than if you do what I think we're called to, which is renew our minds in Christ. And so then we, we become aware of all our presuppositions and assumptions and biases and allow scripture to reform us and then instead of reading the bible through the eyes of the culture we start reading the culture through the eyes of scripture and saying um up is down and down is up and i'm not like i'm not judging people i'm not people aren't my enemies i'm not saying like i'm good and they're garbage i'm saying we live in the swell of the wave of a great revolution and we are privileged to get to be a part of that. And we get to speak the truth and we get to make these choices knowing that we'll be giving up advantages. And that's how we are aligning ourselves with Jesus and knowing that ultimately in that, in that move, we're not functioning as saviors in any way. We are doing what the Lord has showed us is good, not just for for our neighbors, but for us. Well, we're running out of time and we only talked about what's astonishing us. I know. Well, and it was, yes. And I feel like we have another thing that we were going to talk about, but two other things we were going to talk about. Yeah. I think we probably, we had two other things need to hold on both of them. Um, but we could give people, well, yeah, yeah, we need to hold on both of them. Um, But we, I'm, I'm, there's this, um, in, in American black church, um, there's this thing that people say, um, and I, I got so accustomed to hearing it until I wasn't in a historically black church anymore. But there's this thing that people say, both pastors and lay people, at the end of a meeting um, to begin to close it out, um, <laughs> you will often hear someone say, if all hearts and minds are clear. <laughs> Let us close. That is the same. It's like the thing someone says at a wedding, you know, speak now or forever hold your peace. Oh, wow. So I just heard that in my head just now. So if all hearts and minds are clear, 
We no. should end this podcast. Well, we should end this podcast. And yet we are not waiting for that great day. Um, but we did. We do want to talk about this article that has been um, published recently. Um, and I wonder if we should just tell people what it is if they wanted to read it before we hey, that's had a great idea. podcast. Right? So like a little two pastors take a walk homework not that you need to do it but Let's just call it a teaser a te- for next time <laughs> just homework if you is kind of heavy just, no but i'm just saying like sometimes we just jump in and we're talking about something and people might be like what what the what so maybe you want to know what we're talking about before we jump in and talk about it and so it is from a um website called restorativefaith.org and the article is called departure colon why i left the church and it is written by a pastor who has left the church. His name is Alexander Lang. Um, it was published three days ago. I don't know him, but he is PCUSA. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we both write, we have thoughts. We, <laughs> we have, have thoughts. thoughts and feelings. Um, but like part, parts of it that we do sort of resonate with. And yeah, oh, Yolanda has notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, yeah, there's no I'm, way. We're not rushing through that. Well, so we need to I just read the article. give said, it a oh, beat. I've got to make some notes on this. Right, right. Oh, Man, oh, I didn't know you had notes. It's all good. We should have gone Next there time. earlier. Next time. Well, you're going to lead that discussion. For but, everything, um, there is a season. Yeah. So anyway, so um, thank you all for listening. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church at Derida Presbyterian, you can go to their new website, which is called DeridaChurch.com. Right. <laughs> I mean, when I think about the hours and mental anguish it took me <laughs> to memorize that last I know you worked so hard I did I worked so hard and I just like barely achieved it and then it got changed say lovey um but you can go to their website deridachurch.com or you can join them for worship on Sunday mornings at 11 a.m or you can check out the derida church podcast on the Podbean website or um the derida church channel on youtube and here are yolando's messages and see worship um that is a gift and if you want to find out more about what god is doing at god's church the grove you can go to our website uh the website which is uh thegrovecharlotte.org uh you could join us for worship at 10 o'clock on sunday mornings you could check out our um youtube channel where um i think just the message is posted on the youtube channel every week and also um our church podcast Um, the Grove Podcast. Look for the tree wearing headphones. Um, Thank you all for listening and we will talk to you next week.